Thank you for tuning in to Black Family Table Talk, a voice for black families. We are your hosts, Tony and Tony. Today's episode is brought to you by ABTF Travels. In 2019, Tony and I traveled to the motherland to experience the year of return. We were so moved by the experience that I decided to go back and immerse myself in the culture for 52 days in Ghana. It was the adventure of a lifetime. Now we're hosting a delegation of artists and art enthusiasts for an epic pilgrimage. Please visit blackfamilytabletalk.com on our products page for details. We hope you can join us. Today's discussion is really interesting. We're going to talk about the banking and laws and how they've impacted the black community. And I can't think of a better person to ask about that than our in-house community development and banking expert, Tony. So stay tuned. This is going to be good. You actually amaze me with your ability to navigate corporate America. How how long have you been working in corporate America? Boy, that's a great question. I've been working in corporate America for... Oh boy, over 25 years. I give a nice round number without giving the exact. Over 25 years. I think more than 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) For the past eight years, I've been in the banking industry. Prior to that, I was in a government, quasi-state government entity for almost 13 years. Prior to that, I was and banking also for probably another four years, four or five years. And before that, I did some other nonprofit work. Mm-hmm. So and so government, so if you span the, the globe between government, nonprofit, and corporate America in the last 30 years. Yeah, I would say so, yeah. But a bulk of your time would be, you would say, would, would have been spent in what? Uh, most of the time, it's probably 50-50. About 50-50. Probably about 50-50. 50 corporate, banking, corporate meaning banking. Banking. And 50% government nonprofit. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, um, what was your favorite job in the past 30 years? Wow. Well, I really enjoy the job I have now. I I just like the the atmosphere. I like the culture. Mm-hmm. I like the principles and I like the things that the, the bank is trying to do in the community. Very community-oriented bank, mm-hmm. uh, regional bank. So I feel good about the new position I have. But my best job was probably working with the quasi-state organization in New Jersey, the Redevelopment Authority. That was um, a job that I really enjoyed. The efforts of the organization was to try to revitalize and spur economic development in 68 municipalities in the state of New Jersey based on Title I, avid school districts. Not to go deep into what all that means, but it has a lot to do with statistics and population, demographics of how many students are on free or reduced lunch. Mm. So that kind of identifies... Uh, Abbott School District. Mm-hmm. Um, long, long story short. So there were 69, 68, 69, because some cities fall on, some cities fall off. And those were the, the a- areas that we were mandated to work with. 
to spur economic development. So a lot of work was done in the community mm. on the ground, grassroots level, um, working with nonprofit organizations, working with community organizations, to helping them put together redevelopment plans for their neighborhoods. So you really got in the community. So you, you worked after hours sometimes to go to community, community meeting to get a sense of what the community wanted. So if they wanted shopping center, grocery stores, and things like that, so you got an opportunity to work with them and help shape opportunities for the community as far as job creation, as far as services and amenities that are offered to them. That was probably my most fulfilling job because it was it worked from the bottom up as opposed to sometimes when you work in corporate America, projects you work on are solely based, sometimes, not always the case, but it is solely based on who has the dollars, you know, to to make a project happen. Because now you're getting into the developer being credit worthy to get financing. In the other instance, we were providing subsidy for people to help them qualify for or help close the gap if the project didn't price out and needed some subsidy to help it work. Mm-hmm. That, now, now, where did the funding come in to do this development in these in these targeted areas? Uh, a lot of it comes from the state government. Um, from the state of New Jersey? State of New Jersey. Well, the agency I work for, the Redevelopment Authority I work for, was provided some funds, some seed funding up front mm-hmm. when it was first created. I want to say 19... 19- 96, I think it was created, but I may be off a year or two. And from there, it operated as a bank. So it it was self-sustaining because we put money out in the street and got a return on that funding. Mm-hmm. And that helped grow the organization. By the time I left the organization, it was roughly 85 $90 million in assets. It's probably more than that now uh, since I left. They have taken on other initiatives that I worked on before leaving, mm-hmm. uh, that being the New Markets Tax Credit Program, which put additional money in there. They probably got some other appropriations and from the state as well. And New Markets Tax Credits funding comes from the federal government, or is it credit for... It's, it's a federal credit. It's a federal credit, okay. Yes, yeah, so it's an incentive for private money to go in distressed areas and provide funding and... Uh, for a project in return, they get a tax credit. So it's a program to incentivize people with capital, with capital. to invest in the communities. Exactly. Now, I don't think most people know about these programs. And this is why I wanted to talk about what you do every day because you work in corporate America, but you're and in, in government, but all of your years, you've always worked inside building communities. And I know I, I, when I attend conferences or hear, hear people talking on other podcasts and stuff, I always think, I hear people say, well, we need to. Well, mm-hmm. we need to. We mm-hmm. need to do this. We need to buy a city block. We need to invest in the community. Mm-hmm. Like T.I. And, and Killer Mike down here in Atlanta, they're starting to to get into purchasing and investing in real estate and developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that people realize that there are 
institutions out here mm-hmm. that are doing investment. I don't think we're seeing the difference, mm-hmm. you know, in our communities. You know, we're fighting gentrification, and, but I don't really think people understand or know that there's federal money set aside to invest in com- community. And then there's also tax incentives to invest in community. Mm-hmm. And then there's also um, banks that mm-hmm. are mandated to invest in community. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why don't you think we're seeing an impact? Now, you work for the state of New Jersey. Does, does, do other states have that same type of development authority? Mm-hmm. Well, Invest Atlanta is here in Atlanta. It's structured the same way. They can be a developer. They can be a redevelopment agency for the city of Atlanta. So a lot of incentives are offered through Invest Atlanta. You have the Community Reinvestment Act of 1997. Mm -hmm. That is the law that came on the books to mandate that banks that, that do business have to provide credit opportunities for wherever they do business. So if you have a branch and you're receiving deposits, you're required to put a certain amount of dollars in that community. Under what administration was that act passed? 1977, that was, who was the president in 1977? that was, uh, that was um, Billy Carter. Yeah, probably Billy, um, mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter. Yeah, Jimmy, <laughs> Carter. Yeah. Jimmy Carter, yeah. That's probably Jimmy Carter. Obviously, it became a bill. It became the law. So what was happening before CRA, you had redlining taking place. Mm -hmm. What is redlining for those of us who don't know? Redlining is a systematic process where lenders drew a red line based on zip codes and demographics based on income, race, were probably the two main ones. There's a couple other factors in it as well. So if you lived in an area that was predominantly black, that had a certain median income, you were deemed unbankable or high risk. High risk community. Okay. High risk community. And that's what, what, what did that lead to? When, what did redlining create? Created a lot of stress on communities mm-hmm. um, because if the banks weren't lending to you, the community had to come up with alternative means that could have led to loan sharking Mm. or some of the creative families were able to pull money together and create create their own bank. Mm. So that means if you needed a new roof and you wanted a line of credit to get a roof, you couldn't get it. You couldn't get it. So you had to kind of patch. So the communities and home ownership yeah. Was in a decline because people decline. there was no investment in community. No. That is that would be a good way it was, to explain it's called it. disinvestment. Yeah. So disinvestment. you know, so okay. you, you it created a lot of issues. You know, that's how you have dilapidation in, in neighborhoods. That's how blight is created. So it was systemic racism. Actually, it mm-hmm. was to prevent people of color that lived in a certain area from having access to credit. And if they got access, it was predatory lending, meaning you got charged a higher rate. Uh, It it created a lot of problems. So the federal government had to do something about it. So anywhere a bank is taking deposits, they have to provide services and credit products to the community. So this was a federal law. This was a federal law. law. Okay. To do something about redlining. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
Okay, so since 1977, because you were what, about 13 in 1977? Yeah. <laughs> since 1977, um, how do you now utilize in the act in your work to help invest in communities? And why don't we see the impact or is the impact? Because a lot of times, you know, policies are implemented and but they don't do what they were designed to do. Is that the case with this this reinvestment act or you have the benchmark is low to moderate income. So if the median income is say $100,000 for the area. So anything 80% below is called is considered moderate. So 80 to 50 is moderate income. So if the median income for the area is a hundred thousand, moderate income starts at eighty and below. So you can get a bulk of your activity or sending around CRA loans and investments, working with someone between that sweet spot of fifty and eighty thousand dollars. Okay, working with communities working with where the, income averages in that right area. Okay, so. The problem where the impact needs to take place is below that 50%. Because they are still disinvested. Still disinvested. Okay. Okay. So it's easy to to meet some of these CRA goals in certain areas Mm -hmm. without really touching the low income community. Uh So you you have the low and then you have the very low. You know, very low is under thirty percent. So if you if you are in that category, you benefit by by having some of the products. You know, they have products. Banks offer products for that community, but you still have to qualify for the credit. Mm-hmm. So you can get a checking account, you can get a a debit card, mm-hmm. or you can get a secured debit card, or you can get training on budgeting and credit and things like that to help you possibly move up the economic ladder. But if you're not moving up because credit is going to be based on your debt-to-income ratio to qualify. So if you don't have a, um, disposable income or if your debt-to-income is high, mm-hmm. it's hard for you to purchase a home. Mm-hmm. It's hard for you to come up with funding. So that that's why you don't see the impact that's necessary. So, and there's where the work needs to be That's done. where the work needs to be okay. done. So there's, you know, speculation. So so what we're 43 years into the this this act. Right. And there's there's still some a lot of work to be done. Still a lot of work to be done. And there are a lot of programs like for instance, there at one point there was a program you can purchase a home with section 8 vouchers. Mm. Okay. That now, was a HUD program. Um, not sure. What it probably was a HUD program. I think it was a HUD program. Um, I, I don't know if it's still around, but some something along those lines because you build wealth by building equity in a home. That's the first line first of building line wealth. Of building wealth. Buying a house. So if you can build equity with a Section Eight voucher, mm-hmm. that will help jumpstart um, your economic situation. Mm-hmm. So. Programs like that probably need to be need to be put to targeting that 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 group of folks that fall below fifty percent of median income. That that will help them. 
So what do families need to do if you have a startup family and you've got two kids, you've got maybe a traditional, maybe not a non-traditional family where you have one income or you may have two incomes, um, if you're lucky enough during these times to have two incomes, what do you think families should do right here and now when it comes to building wealth and advancing themselves? Um, just some really basic basic steps? Well, that's a hard question to answer because it is going to be based on your philosophy on on money. And that you, you have a different opinions across the board on how to deal with money. Money can work for you if you invest it properly. You have to budget. You have to live within your means. So the first step is budgeting. Absolutely. And if you were, if you were going to walk somebody from where they are to mm-hmm. financial wealth, the mm-hmm. first step is to get a budget. Get a budget mm-hmm. and stay out of unnecessary consumer debt. Mm. Credit card debt. Credit mm. card debt. That's... Now, are, is there training? You, you talked about training that the banks offer in different communities. Do I just go to the bank and say, you know, I would like some financial education training? I'm really looking forward. Or is there not? are there nonprofits out here that I can connect with to help me? With the budget and building a savings so I can mm-hmm. get financially secure? That's, that's both. Mm-hmm. That's both. You can go to the bank and, and ask for financial literacy, financial education material. See, a lot of people don't know that. I didn't know that. And, mm-hmm. I, and I'm, I live with you. Yeah. Say that again. <laughs> well, bank offers that information. Mm-hmm. Um, it's online now, so that you can take classes online to teach you about budgeting, teach you about credit, uh, how to buy a home, their home buy education programs mm. that you go through that teach you about how to take care of a house. Mm. You know, before you buy the home, you know, you have to go through, edu- you know, they offer classes that are help. And these are through, these through HUD and through nonprofit organizations Banks provide their employees to teach these classes at nonprofit organizations, home buyer education, financial education, to help with budgeting, to help with how do you buy a home, how do you maintain a home, the bills that you don't expect about, you expect to have when owning a home, because if you rent it most of your time, your life. If there was a problem, something break down in the house, you call the landlord. Now you're the homeowner. These things are on you. So there's some basics that people need to know. And the first thing they should do is learn how to budget, mm-hmm. pursue financial education mm-hmm. through banks and or nonprofit organizations. Exactly. First time home buyer programs. That's one. Yeah. And then because the fastest path to wealth is buying a house. That's the first step. Would you say that? That would that'd be the first step is to mm-hmm. own, a, own your home. Own your own home. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and then you build from there. And then build from there. I think this is really, really valuable information that a lot of people don't know. I, I have a testimony as far as that goes because my mom was able to accumulate enough wealth in her retirement through the equity in the home that we lived in, my childhood home. Mm-hmm. Now, when she bought it, she bought it in the 1960s. Her and my dad bought it in the 1960s for $26,000. And when she sold it, she sold it for six figures. 
So she was able to accumulate over six figures worth of, of nest egg. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sold it in the 1990s. And she's now living off that along with her retirement income. Mm-hmm. And she has plenty of money in the event that um, she needs care um, for home home care. So she'll. we never have to worry about her going into a nursing home. And the other thing about your mom is she's very frugal. Yeah, she, she doesn't was. do she's, a lot of waste. Yeah, she's she's really good with money. You know, so that's, true. that's where the budgeting comes in. Yeah, you yeah, because you can't spend everything that's coming in. Yeah, you can't. That's true. Yeah. You got to pass on that you gotta, stuff. You got to pass on some things. Yeah, and you have to wait on some things. And well, there's a good philosophy that I always yeah. follow: save for what you want. Buy what you need. Well, this has really been good. Thanks for taking us down this path um, so that we can understand better how to get started and at least move some families forward towards financial independence. That's Black Family Table Talk. That's what's up. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Family Table Talk. We pray that you heard some principles to put into your strong Black Family toolbox. Be sure to tune in next week and remember, sharing is caring. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and visit our website at blackfamilytabletalk.com. Look for special discounts and ways to be a part of the Black Family Table Talk community. Under Section 107 of the Copyright Act 1976, allowance is made for fair use for purposes such as criticism, comments, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that may otherwise be infringing. The news and opinions expressed on Black Family Table Talk do not necessarily reflect various platform hosts. All topics are for entertainment purposes only. Discretion is strongly advised and all commentary is alleged. This is a Micah 68 Media LLC production.